Well, it's, it's a pleasure for me to be here. I, I have um, such respect for, um, for Wayne and Andre. Wayne's a friend. He was my student years ago, and I was just thinking about how that makes me... Um, I'm not as young as I think I am. I, I turned 60 a couple uh, months ago, and that's... Yeah, I mean, that, like, I, I'm actually now um, starting to accept it when the people at Taco Bell give me the senior discount. So, I mean, that's how long I'm getting used, used to being <laughs> that age. Um, yeah, but Wayne's my student years ago, and then Andre's been my student and is uh, currently. So, I have great respect for them uh, and affection, and happy to be here. There you go. That was what I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're uh, we're going to spend uh, five weeks on uh, on First Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. So uh, next to Romans is maybe Paul's most important letter. I think most people say Romans is Paul's most important letter. That's the closest thing we have to a systematic theology. That is Paul sitting in his study and thinking like an academic. Most of the time, that might be the, actually the only letter of Paul like that, uh, but most of the time we have Paul doing something else. And so if you looked at your bulletin, I think the sermon today is titled, Paul the Theological Fix-It Man, because that's what he does most of the time. He has certainly had the ability to be a college professor, but his path in life was more uh, an evangelist. He would go around, planted, we would now use the language of planting churches all over the place. And he didn't fly there. He didn't have a frequent flyer number or always get on the A-list with Southwest. Uh, a lot of times he walked. I mean, would, how many of you would say, yeah, after church, let's go walk to the Galleria? <laughs> okay, two people, maybe. Uh. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, but, but he, he walked hundreds of miles. So just an just a, 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 a incredible commitment. And in the ancient world... Um, there were people who, who never traveled more than 20 miles from where, they, from where they were born. So, I mean, this is, he's an extraordinary figure. So, I'm going to say that maybe 1 Corinthians is his most important letter. Because it is the best example and the most extensive example of him doing in the New Testament what he does most of the time in the New Testament. And we get a chance to see um, his, his mind at work. Uh, and not just in a, in a dispassionate way, but at the way a, way a plumber would go about a task. Investigating and then figuring out which tools, which, which tools he needs to use, in what order, and in what combination. So we get to see him apply theology to real life situations, which actually is just like you and me. Because while we may do systematic theology or theology like in a study uh, like we're writing it down, most of the time we're, you know, we, we experience real life. How do we react to somebody cutting us off on the freeway? How do we react to, uh, to an issue when our child um, you know, is being somewhat rebellious or they've heard something or they're watching something on TV? How do, how do we, how do we uh, put into practice the many disparate elements of our faith? So we get to see them operate in the same way that you and I operate. Every day. So a little bit about Corinth. Um, you can see this is a map of Greece, uh, close up, Athens over here. Corinth 
here and there's this isthmus, this tiny stretch. It's only about, a, it's actually only a mile. So it's maybe about as far as we are from Auburn Folsom Road, maybe a little later, uh, a, little, a little shorter. Um, and Corinth is right on the edge. And you may remember uh, from the New Testament, uh, there's a woman, he mentions a woman named Phoebe, who's deaconess of Cray. So Corinth wasn't right on the coast, but it was right in between. And there were two smaller cities on either, on either body of water that were port cities. And uh, even in the ancient world, they were, the Romans tried to build a, a, a canal through that isthmus. They never could get it done, but they would... Uh, pull up, a, a, a ship would dock, and then they would unload everything and just carry it a mile across because it was such a long way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So this canal, and you can see there's a, whoops, there's a little, um, I didn't notice this was sloping. That was very exciting. I'm almost like going to the amusement park. Yeah, so there's a little boat there. You can see it's about maybe 100 feet down. Um, and this actually was... Uh, this was built in the late 1800s, and there's a plaque nearby. This is totally unimportant, but a plaque nearby uh, uh, making the claim that this was built by the Greek government in conjunction with the government of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I mean, that like, throws you back to a whole other, another world, uh, so before World War I. So uh, it's an important city, ancient. Primarily uh, a major city of trade, just because of, of, of all the, of, as I said, moving the goods across the, the isthmus. It was the chief rival of Athens in the Peloponnesian War. So give you a little sense of, of, uh, of the chronology. So four centuries before Paul, there was this major conflict in Greece, ancient Greece, between Athens on the one hand, Corinth and Sparta, and some other city-states on the other. Um, it, uh, and it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. So the Romans, of course, in Italy, and they came to conquer the whole Mediterranean. Uh, but they actually were not, um, they had a lot of setbacks. They were defeated at least as often as they were victorious in battle. Uh, but they were dogged. They just slowly built up um, uh, the size of their empire. And... Uh, before they turned to Greece, you may remember the stories of the Romans and Hannibal, the Carthaginian. So that, they conquered the western uh, Mediterranean before they turned east. So the battle with Hannibal, that's 300s or so, 301. It's the battle of Zama where Hannibal, the only time he lost. Then they turned to the, uh, to the west, uh, to the east, and they started conquering Greece. And uh, they actually... Uh, destroyed Corinth in 146 B.C., and it was abandoned. So for, in the 50s, in fact, uh, or 60s, Cicero went through, and he talked about how he could see the, you know, the, the, the remains of what had once been a city, and there were sheep you know, grazing down the main street. No one was living there. Um, but then the Romans reestablished it in 44 B.C., I think we think of the Roman Empire kind of like, well, we can't help but use analogs from our own experience. Um, but that's not, it, that maybe isn't always very helpful. The Roman Empire, it's a little like if Sacramento conquered the entire continent of North America and ran the whole thing through the Sacramento City Council. So to be a Roman citizen was not to be a citizen of the empire, 
technically it was to be a citizen of the city of Rome. So when they reestablished Corinth, they made it a Roman colony. They settled Roman army veterans there. So these are all people with Roman citizenship. So even though it's a city in Greece, it is culturally a Roman city. It'd be as if 7,000 people uh, from Argentina moved up and, uh, and built a little city uh, west of Chico where right now there's just rice fields. And that city might be in California, but it's an Argentinian cultural city. Does that make sense? So, um, and what does this also mean? It means there's no old aristocracy or natural pecking order. The Romans were, were fastidiously uh, uh, scrupulous about maintaining social status. So the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years. Alexander's empire lasted maybe 30. And the, you know, the Athenian empire less than 100 so the Romans came up with this complex ideological matrix that allowed their culture to survive a thousand years. And one of the features of that, of that matrix, that ideological matrix, was they were insistent on reifying social distinctions. Wealthy, then the next class down. They even made a distinction between, between people who were not slaves and people who had once been slaves and now are set free. You may recall that just incidentally in Acts 9, there's mention made of the synagogue of the freedmen. People who are worshiping Yahweh, they're Jewish, they've either converts or they're, or they're ethnically Jewish, and they have, but they have once been slaves and now they're set free. That's a, that seems like a wacky world where they would be so concerned about that. And it would even... It would even cross over into, into the worship of Yahweh within Judaism. There's a whole separate synagogue for people who had once been slaves but are now set free. So in, in, in Corinth, there's no old aristocracy or established pecking order. That, meant, that means that uh, to live there, it's a little like the start of Monopoly, where everybody has the same chance. And that was one of the very few places in the Roman world where this was true. So here's a little uh, a map of, uh, of the Eastern Roman Empire. And you can see there's Greece and Asia Minor. And this is actually Paul's second missionary journey. So all the stuff not on water, Paul walked there. That, that, that always impresses me. Uh, I mean, I ran cross-country in high school, and I, I would probably would rather drive down to the mailbox now than walk there, let alone run. So, as I said, ancient important city, trade, destroyed by the Romans. So here's a couple photographs. So this is, uh, so I took this photo. Uh, usually there's evidence of a photo I took because you can see my finger uh, partially covering the lens somewhere, but this is... Avoids that problem. But right, but, so right behind me, uh, almost directly behind me, would be that canal. Uh, this is the, what would be like the main street in ancient Corinth. And this is not the original Corinth. This is the Roman city. But it's built on the same spot. And I'll go back. That mountain is the Acro-Corinth. 
like the Acropolis in Athens is the Acro-Hi-Polis city, high place of the city. And the Acropolis in Athens is right in the middle of the city, and it's maybe three or so, 400 feet above the area around it. This is just a mountain that's almost 1,000 feet higher than the city, outside the city limits. So it was just a little bit different than the Acropolis in Athens. Main drag. Here's another photo of just some of the remains uh, of ancient Corinth. Um, this is, uh, so if, you, if we walk up this roadway and go up those steps you can see, where we would, our view would be of this. And you might be able to see there's a sign here that says Bema. That's the word that means um, judgment seat. So in, in Acts uh, uh, 18, we read that Paul is there in, in, in Corinth, and there's uh, trouble that's been started up because of, because of his preaching. People are a little bit whacked out about what, what he's teaching. And they want to bring him before the Roman uh, uh, governor Gallio. And we know that Gallio was the governor of Greece for one year, 50 to 51, like June to June. So we know exactly within, you know, within six months, one way or the other, where the, when this happened. And it would have been right here. That's where Gallio would have, would have stood. And according to Acts, uh, Gallio doesn't even want to hear the case. Uh, the, people, the people wanting to uh, accuse Paul, make their case, and he, and he just throws it out of court immediately. But when you're standing there, you're, you're like, you're, it's not that, I mean, it's not even as big as from here to that wall. So you're standing there, you're thinking, wow, that's kind of within like 10 feet either way. You know, this is actually right where Paul, where Paul stood. So Paul founded the Christian church or the Christian community in Corinth on his second missionary journey after he left Athens. And you may know that that journey, he's often staying places maybe three weeks, sometimes maybe only 10 or 11 days. But he stays in Corinth 18 months. Uh, so it was 50, 51. And after we left, the Christian community there experienced a number of problems. Uh, and maybe we should excuse ourselves for being happy about those problems. Because the fact that they had problems is what caused Paul to write the letter. So we get to see him thinking theologically with them. If everything was fine, he wouldn't have had to write a letter. So that they've got problems is good for us, bummer for them. And he wrote it on his third missionary journey during his three-year stay in Ephesus, 54-56. Now, there are two letters to the Corinthians in the New Testament. We know that Paul wrote four total. This is almost certainly the first one. Then there was another one that is lost to us. Sometimes called the tearful letter. What we call Second uh, Corinthians is probably the third letter, and some people think it's the third and the fourth put together. So we know he wrote four, we have two, and the second one we have might be two of those letters smushed together. And the first part, chapters one through six, are his response to a letter from a group within the church of Corinth that he identifies as Chloe's people. So um, for the next five weeks, we're going to spend time just talking about some of the major features of this letter. And, and um, he is writing this letter in response to two letters he's gotten from the church. One, the official letter from the church. That's chapter 7 and following. But first, he responds to a letter from Chloe's people. So what does that tell you? Pardon? 
They got yeah, they got they got separate stories going on here. What else does it tell you? He knows him personally, exactly. What else? Yeah, Chloe's a woman. That's kind of interesting. And what does that mean? Well, you know, they didn't have church buildings. They met in homes. And in homes, in the, I mean, they didn't have a sophisticated construction like we do, uh, or, or as, as sophisticated. And so most people think that probably the largest group of people that can meet in any home would be maybe about 30 people. So in Corinth, there were at least four what we call house churches. Because there was no space for, for all of those people to meet in one spot. And one of them is the group that meets at Chloe's house. The next section, chapter 7 through unclear, are his response from the letter, from a letter to him from the church as a whole. And somewhere, chapter 13, chapter 14, he sort of slides into, away from answering their letters to writing about themes that have come to mind as a result of the two letters he's received. Does that make sense? Okay, that's good. Yeah, so, um, yeah, um, I think there were times when my mom responded to the letters from her three children and realized that she got slightly different stories from the three children. And she had to try to figure out, okay, where's the, where's the reality, you know, <laughs> in between these, these three stories? It's a little like that. And a leitmotif of this letter is wisdom. The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Now, a couple things by way of background. Uh, the Romans were very religious. But what it meant for them to worship is very different than what we think of as worship. So Roman paganism, or Greek paganism, for instance, there was no such thing as conversion. If you became aware of another god, you just added a little idol to your, to your mantelpiece. So to, uh, to exclusivity, was, it wasn't even a part of their way of thinking. So when the Christian gospel comes along, and Christians start saying there's one God, to everyone they speak with, that sounds like you're being, um, you know, uh, you're being arrogant. There are lots of gods. Why do you have to only have one? And their worship service might last uh, maybe 90 seconds. So you would pour, you'd put, maybe if you were a woman, you'd put a little uh, veil on your head or, a, or a, something to cover your head, and you'd pour a little drink out, and you'd say a prayer, and then you're done. So the gospel comes along, and people who maybe haven't listened to preachers enough, they join this group, and they're not really even aware. They maybe come to a worship service, they're not really even aware of how different this is than their normal pattern of religious worship. But part of the wisdom of the world is, um, as, I, as we said, it's a highly stratified society. And it was also one um, where uh, they didn't have the Galleria. 
So there weren't that many ways of expressing your social superiority. We have all sorts of ways of expressing who we think we are. The car we drive, the bumper stickers we put on the car we drive. The bags we carry, or at least what, the, the, what, the, what, you know, what store is on the bags we carry. I know people who carry bags from Saks Fifth Avenue even though they've been to Target. They want to express something about who they are or who they would like people to think they are. So it's a highly stratified society, and there are few ways of expressing social superiority. And so one of the things that happened um, that is less like, it, it's less likely to happen in our culture today, but it was, it was not unprevalent 100 years ago, was people joined voluntary associations. So you, maybe you've driven the old part of Roseville or old part of Auburn, and there's something called the IOOF, right? The International Order of Odd Fellows, which is a, a, an organization for craftsmen who aren't part of a major craft. So it's smaller crafts. But there's also the Elks Lodge and the Moose Lodge and the Seroptimus, etc., all that kind of stuff. It's unclear what they do in those meetings, but it's important uh, for them to, go, to belong to this club. And it's a little like, do you remember the Flintstones? And Fred and Barney belong to a club. Remember the name? Yes, the Sacred Order of the Water Buffalo. Not just the Water Buffalo, or the Order, the Sacred Order of the Water Buffalo. And there's somebody there called the Grand Poobah. And it's unclear what they do in their meetings, but people belong. Now, the, the, the Roman world had thousands of these, with titles like this, the most holy order of wool washers in the city of Ostia, the port of Rome. The sacred consistory of linen weavers. And so people would join religious groups and they would, you would join one where you thought, I've got a pretty good chance of rising to the top of this one. So you don't want to join one that's too far below how you think of yourself or too far above how you think of yourself. But one where you think you can rise to the top. And one of the issues going on here is people joined the, the, the Christian church there in Corinth, and they thought it was just one of those kind of things. Like it's a way of showing superiority or of, or of making some kind of statement about, about yourself, the same way we do about our cars. Have you ever wondered about... about about people who want to express something about themselves because of the car they drive or what sort of, what sort of goop they put on the car. Like, and, if other pe- and the people they want to impress are other people who are concerned about cars. But if you think about it, the other people concerned about cars are only concerned about whether you're paying attention to their car. <laughs> They're not actually paying attention to your car. So it seems like it's, uh, Yeah, it's a little bit of a fool's errand. So these things were called colleges, collegia. And some people would join uh, because it gave them, if they were wealthy, because it gave them a chance to show patronage, and they would gain the respect and thanks of other people. And what we know is women were far and away the most frequent supporters of religious organizations in the Roman world. Now, there were all kinds of other ones, trade organizations, etc., and men were the supporters of those, but women tended to be the supporters of religious organizations, which helps explain why, why it's 
Chloe's people. So, introduction. First uh, six chapters, Paul's response to a letter from Chloe's people. And there are some issues here. First, the first eight chapters, there's division. And the result of that, or that's the result of immaturity. And then Paul transitions partway through chapter 3 and chapter 4 to talking about maturity. There's a a, a theme of pride that runs through chapter 5. And then chapter 6, lawsuits. Why are you suing? Why are you uh, bringing one another to court? So very practical issues. And then chapters 7 through 12 or so, Paul's response uh, to the official letter. He's going to talk about sexuality and gender issues in chapter 7, about, uh, I think we could say, knowledge, right? Meat and idols. Yes, you have, yeah, you can eat that idol meat if you want, because idols are just wood and stone. So you have the right, that knowledge, but, but if you... Um, if, it, if there's somebody in your Christian community who used to belong to that particular shrine where that meat was sacrificed, because you didn't go get meat at, at Safeway or Raley's, if there was meat available in the city, it's almost certainly it would have been sacrificed. It would have been slaughtered in sacrifice to some god. And a tiny bit would have been burned on the altar and the rest would be sold. So the question is, wow, does that is there something that has infected that meat because it's been dedicated to some idol. And Paul says, idols are just wooden stone. They have no necessary power. But if there's someone who used to belong to that cult, well, it's possible they have already opened the door of their lives to that spiritual force. So you should give up your rights in the interest of that other person's area of Weakness, and it's not just intellectual weakness, it's, it's spiritual forces are real. But they can't just, if you're in Christ, they can't just come and attack you successfully. But we open the door to them inadvertently, foolishly sometimes. And if, they, if someone used to belong to that cult, then maybe that, maybe that door is actually just a screen door. And so you need to, to give up your rights in the interest of that, of that member, the fellow member of your Christian community. So those are that's where we're going. Does that make sense? Is that okay? Because I could do other stuff if you wanted to. Okay. So the first is Paul's letter from Chloe's people, um, and Paul's response. So there is clearly a, a, a divided church, or a, what's some kind of a party spirit, like various political parties. If you've read a commentary, maybe even your, in the footnotes of a Bible, you've got something like that. And each one of them is saying, we're better than, than the other house churches. Each was claiming a position based upon an international leader who would stay with them. Peter, Apollos, and Paul. And they're saying, the Peter church is saying, we're better than the rest of you because Peter stayed with us. And he was, he was the close disciple to Jesus. Paul wasn't. And then some are, are following Apollos. Okay, yeah, he wasn't a disciple, but man, he is smart. And some are following Paul. Okay, yeah, he wasn't a disciple either, but you know, he's had this, this powerful revelation. So they're all tying their sense of worth to who their superstar uh, patron is. 
And then there's a fourth church that didn't have anybody famous stay there. And so they were saying, well, we follow Jesus. <laughs> and Paul says, what are you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking? Did, did, did I die for you? Was Apollos raised for you? So Christians should have ultimate allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. Not to any human leader. Human leaders are, 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 are to be followed and trusted and, 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 um, given and, and respect is due them to the degree they are faithful to Jesus himself. And we do them a disservice if we attach too much loyalty to them instead of to the Lord to whom they are pointing. So Paul says, I don't want you, I don't want you to get excited. I don't, I don't want you to join the Paul fan club. You know, put I follow Paul bumper stickers on your chariot. Don't do that. I mean, I, 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 we're, all, we're all simply pointing to the Lord and Savior. I didn't start a church of Paul. I didn't baptize in my own name, he says. So we see here, and we're going to go over these, what's that, one, two, three, over five ways in which he uh, unpacks this at the very beginning of the letter. So, 117, against the wisdom of the world. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Because human wisdom is about what? It's about... It's about expressing power. It's about expressing dominance. It's about going to the fanciest school with the best name. It's about, it's about driving the right kind of car. That's human wisdom. Paul says, who would have thought that God, the God of the universe, would get his will done by sending his son to be a servant and then to suffer the ultimate humiliation of being crucified. What if you thought much about the way Jesus was, you know, the circumstances of his birth? Dirt poor, right? Dirt poor. Not only that, but everybody knew there was a question about who his dad was. So he was, a, the word would be mamzer. He was known, it was the open question, that he was born, we would use the word, the, the kind word is illegitimate. So to, I mean, he lived his whole life like under the very lowest kind of human categories you could imagine. Does that make sense? So God didn't choose power to get his, his work done. God chose the path of weakness, totally the opposite of the way any of us would choose to operate. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, because they, they think that, that God is going to send a Messiah to reestablish a physical human kingdom. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Why would you choose weakness? No one chooses weakness. Does that make sense? So that's his, that's his first line of argument. He says, okay, here are these, there, there are two wisdoms at work. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, this is chapter 2, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
my message to you and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He certainly had the capacity to do that. Multi-talented person. But, with it, but instead, it was with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that you, your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So we do not speak a message of wisdom among the mature. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So the rulers of this age refers to the spiritual forces that are out there in our world and uh, sometimes called the principalities and powers. And they operate in the same way that most human society operates. That is, it's about our status, it's about our power, it's about our control. And Paul says, but you know, the, the way the gospel works, it's, it, it's the exact opposite. It's, I mean, this is why J.R. Tolkien, in his great cycle, The Lord of the Rings, has the successful uh, uh, endeavor to uh, defeat evil, to send two hobbits alone to destroy the ring of power. I mean, who, and, and so the enemy, Saran, would never imagine that. Does that make sense? So not about human wisdom, not about power or authority or how we look or, uh, or, or some kind of reputation in the world. There's that way the world works, which is status, power, money, authority, and there's the way the gospel works. Then there's a sense of the Spirit telling us. God revealed this to us by His Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, after the fall, after Genesis 2... The Spirit of God comes on people occasionally, and then it leaves. You may remember there's a passage, a critical passage in Ezekiel 36, where God says, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. I mean, hallow is not a word we use very often. Uh, Hallowed be your name. May people understand you correctly. So God says, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. May people understand me correctly. Why, he says to the Israelites, because you've allowed my name to be profaned among the nations. Other people groups, they look to you to understand me. And you haven't been living according to my character, so they've looked to you and they've drawn wrong conclusions about me. But it ain't their fault. It's because you're my representatives and so they're looking to you. It's because you aren't living according to my principles. So then God says, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And that's what happens at the crucifixion and resurrection, right? Jesus says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. But I will send another counselor, the spirit of truth. You will know him, future tense, because he is with you, because it's the spirit in me, and will be in you. And if you remember, if you read the early chapters of Acts, the Spirit comes down, and from that point, the, the, the disciples actually understand. So the idea here is that Paul powerfully expresses is, if you're a believer, the Spirit of the living God dwells in you, dwells in me. The only question is, are we paying attention? How much, how much time are we spending 
opening, as Augustine said, opening the, the, the mansion, the, the, the home of our heart where the spirit dwells. Do we have the spirit stuck in a 300 square foot studio apartment? Or are we, or are we slowly building the space for God's spirit to be more active and at work in our lives? So Paul says, wow, faith this Christian thing is not about just trying to show how awesome you are the way all the other religions are. It's a living faith where the spirit of the living God comes and dwells in you. Take the time to, to create space in your life so that you can understand God and live to God. Because we're made for that. And then Paul says, yeah, but you're still babies. You're controlled by your own desire. So the two words there, epithumia, is the Greek word for desire. And in English, desire can be both positive and negative, right? But normally, like if there's a perfume named desire, we're pretty sure which way that one's going. Now, uh, in Hebrew... There are two words, there, there are two phrases, yetzer hara and yetzer hatov. Now, tov is the word for good. So the way we're built is, after, after, the, after the fall, inside each one of us, there's something called the yetzer hara, a spirit for evil, and the yetzer hatov, a spirit for good. That's why Paul can say, that which I don't want to do, I do. That's me. I don't know about you. Just yesterday, thinking to myself, don't do that, don't do, don't do that. And that's what, watching myself do it, right? So we, we, we're, we're kind of split. But we also have the yetzer ha-tob, the good inclination. And so Paul says, yep, we've got these, we have these two inclinations, but with the spirit of the living God comes to dwell in us, we can now expand the power of that good inclination. We can live free of our own baser instincts. The question is whether we're, whether we're moving in that direction. So brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. You're just babies. You're still worldly because there's jealousy and quarreling among you. So therefore, you're, you're worldly. You're, you're still thinking it's all about me. Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. Are you not acting like mere men? So here he's saying, you're just giving in to that yetzer hara. I want you, I want you to, to know, understand, and remember that what, what God has saved you for is to draw you to himself so you can grow up into who he has meant you to be, to free you from that, that prison you put yourself in. And then finally, once again, the two wisdoms. Don't deceive yourselves. If anyone thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he'd be better if they became a fool so that they could become wise. For the wisdom of this age is foolishness in God's sight. And the wisdom of God is foolishness in the world's sight. So, some foundational principles for Paul's first letter. We live in the world, but our true citizenship is in heaven. Once we become Christians, we become, the word of the New Testament uses is uranapolitai. So uranus is the Greek word for heaven. We become citizens of heaven. So we don't actually belong here. Our true citizenship is somewhere else. We're here as ambassadors. 
Secondly, as human beings, we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. But we have been saved from our sinful nature, but we're also saved for something, to live into the, the promise that God has for us. Yep, saved for is really important, but so, uh, saved from is really important, but so saved for. And the spirit dwelling in us will allow us, if we pay attention, we learn to live into that spirit, with that spirit, to grow into what God desires of us. And there's a reality of spiritual forces. They stand behind human institutions and cultural practices. Some of the principles. So for Paul, some things are more important than others. That's a pretty simple principle. So uh, he doesn't, he expresses it not here so much, but this word, it's from Philippians 1.9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's interesting. Your love may abound more and more. Not your smarty pantsness may abound more and more. But your love may abound more and more. And all knowledge, so knowledge is right. Knowledge is important. And all discernment, how to use that knowledge. That you may do the things that really matter. That's what ta diaferonta means. So how you judge. So uh, my wife, Christina, has been telling me for about a year and a half, you know, you got you to gotta prune those bushes in front of the house. So I've decided I'm going to do it. No matter what, I'm doing it when I get home. You know, when I get home, I'm going to do it. And as I drive down the driveway, my house is on fire. But I say, nope, I said I was going to prune those bushes. That would be a failure to understand what's important in the moment. <laughs> and so... Ta diafranta is know what really matters. So you will be able to see as we go through verse Corinthians, so Paul says some things are more important than others. Let's accomplish the most important things first. And there's also, I said, the reality of the world, um, the reality of the spirit, the way of the world, and I know I, with putting the name Dennis Robin up there, I'm going to have to explain that. Um, So there's this, this bit in chapter 11 where Paul says um, uh, women go about in public, you know, uh, women should have a covering over their head. What's that about? Um, in the Roman world, women could go about, went about in public, if they were going to do anything in public, they should have their heads covered always, 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 always. But beginning around 20 or 30 years before Paul wrote this letter, the wife and daughters of the emperor began going about in public without their heads covered. And it was a way of saying, because people who are socially superior get to break the rules. So Dennis Rodman, famous basketball player for the Chicago Bulls 15, 20 years ago. I uh, was living in Chicago when they won their championships. And after one championship uh, was won, uh, there was a story in the newspaper, Chicago Tribune, the next morning that Dennis Rodman had gone out partying, celebrating. Uh, but before partying, he'd gone home and put on a, a wedding dress. He's 6'9" put on a wedding dress and rode his motorcycle downtown. And uh, what an interesting guy. So I, I got very, ex I thought that was great. I just, so I, I went to work the next day. I, I bought a wedding dress and no, I wouldn't do that. So I mean, but if I had done that, what would have happened to me? No one would have said, what an interesting guy. David would have had, David would not have had a job anymore. Because the, because the powerful get to break the rules. 
And so what Paul is saying there to, to women, there were some women who were speaking in church, but without their heads covered. And so the issue is, don't you dare use the cross of Christ to elevate yourself, to make it about yourself. Does that make sense? Pardon? Of course it is. But, that, but that's what, so there were folks who were using Christianity to draw attention to themselves. So that's what that's about. So these are, the, these are some of the principles we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. Okay? How does that sound? Okay. Well, uh, I'm glad to hear that you think it's okay. I was thinking, um, my niece who's now 30, when she was maybe 10, I had just gotten my PhD and went to visit my brother and uh, uh, had a convertible because I wanted that my, my nieces to spend time with me. And so uh, my one niece, who was, I mean, she was 7, 8, 9, 10, maybe somewhere in there, but um, uh, I told her I was going to buy, uh, not buy, get a convertible, run a convertible. And so... Um, when I got there, she had already developed this plan. The next day, Saturday, uh, at 9, 10, and 11, I was going to make three trips to uh, ice cream. And she already had a schedule. Three, different, three of her friends, friends were coming on, on the hour, one at 9, one at 10, one at 11. And every trip would be 45 minutes so that, the, 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 that there'd be space passing period between so the friends never saw each other. But the idea, and she told me very clear, Uncle David, here's what's going to happen tomorrow. At 9, 10, 11, you're going to drive me and a friend to ice cream. Number one, you drive. Number two, um, you pay. <laughs> Number three, you say nothing. <laughs> so that's what happened. The next day, I mean, it, it went just like she thought, clockwork. And uh, the first one went fine. And then the second one, I, I, apparently she thought to herself, oh, I ought to explain who's driving this car to my friend. So I heard my niece say, that's my Uncle David. He's a doctor but not the kind who does anybody any good. <laughs> so that was, a good, <laughs> that was a good lesson for me at the very start. But I'm glad you think that this might be for our good if we spend some time <laughs> thinking about 1 Corinthians. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. Here we are. Uh, we are broken and we are lost. And without you... Um, our lives are, are hopeless. But Lord, we thank you that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can be made whole. May our hearts be soft and open to the leading of your spirit. And may we expand a place in our heart where your spirit dwells. So that a month from now, a year from now, we look more like Jesus than we do today. And all God's people said,